how many of you would like to have a million dollars in your bank account? Anyone? I sure would. What would you do if you had a million dollars in your bank account? Would you stop going to work? Would you just sit back, live off of the interest and enjoy life? Maybe take some trips that you've always wanted to take. What would you do if you had a million dollars? I want you to turn in your Bibles with me today to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And I want us to look at a very familiar story regarding someone who had a lot of money and someone who wanted to follow Jesus. And what Jesus said in response to this young man. Matthew chapter 19. Then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones he required? Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, Go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard. For someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, Man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We are continuing in our study, True Gospel and Real Disciples. And we have looked at those definitive characteristics of the true gospel. So that we might know and be able to distinguish between the alternate Gospels that we are hearing, which are wrapped in a cloak of truth, but which truly embody a Gospel that is not of Christ. And the true Gospel, which alone can enable people to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. It is that Gospel that you and I are, pro are to proclaim to all people everywhere, for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You and I are called to bear witness to that gospel. We are called to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And so we are beginning to look at what it means to be a real disciple of Jesus Christ. As we look at this passage today, you and I are going to understand that it is easier to become a millionaire than to follow Jesus. Remember this. 
It is easier for you to become a millionaire than to follow Jesus. This is an interesting passage. This young man came to Jesus. He was an accomplished young man. He was a young man who was wealthy. He was successful. Matthew and Luke both record this encounter with Jesus. Luke characterizes him as a young ruler. He not only had wealth, but he had prominence, he had status, and a position of authority. And he came to Jesus with this question. What do I need to do to have eternal life? Or more precisely, what good thing do I need to do? And when Jesus responded to him, he said, keep the commandments. The young man's response was interesting but telling. He responded with a question, which ones? Let me ask you this morning, which commandments of Jesus are you to keep? Which directives of God are you to follow? Which ones are you following? Which commands are you keeping? The fact that he answered in such a way reveals his perspective, a perspective of choosing and determining on his own preferential basis which commands of God were acceptable to him and which ones he would follow. So what did Jesus say? He did not recite all of the Ten Commandments. He recited a few of them. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And then he spoke what is known as the second commandment in the words of Jesus, which is likened to the first. The first being, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second one summing up all of the relational commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. The young man was not self-effacing whatsoever. All these, he said, I have kept. That young man is asserting his own goodness. I've done everything that God requires anyone to do. What do I still lack? That question, again, is also telling because he is either wanting affirmation of his goodness or he is sensing that there is something yet that he must do. It is more likely that it is the form, former because of what we see throughout this story. And Jesus responded to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give it all away to the poor, and then come and follow me. First of all, this word perfect. Jesus used this word perfect in his Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he used it in the context of telling us that we are to love our enemies. We are to do good to those who harm us. We are to bless those who curse us. For the Father in heaven is also good, not only to the righteous, but also to the wicked. Be perfect then as your heavenly father is perfect. What was Jesus saying? God expects those of us who claim to be his children to live by the same standard. 
that he exhibits towards us. We can't truly be his children and live in a way that is opposite or contradictory to how he lives. We must follow his example. And now Jesus uses this word perfect again. What does he mean? If you really want to follow God, these things are in the way. They need to go. You need to get rid of them before you can follow me. So go. So everything you have. And in the process, lose your status, your prominence, your authority, and then you can come and follow me. What was this young man's response? He went away sad because he had great wealth. Let's look at what takes place at the beginning of this story. A man came up to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? To which Jesus responded, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. In this passage, Jesus has introduced what you and I are going to call the disqualifying invariable. What do we mean? Our human perspective, the perspective of humanity in general, of society, asserts that there is worth and value in who I am and what I have attained. And that ultimately, those factors make me good. They give me worth. And so someone who has gone to college and graduated with their degree has more worth than the person who has dropped out of high school and never earned their diploma. We would feel that one of our sons and daughters who had done such a thing was not as good. Their life was not as worthwhile as another of our sons or daughters who had gone on to college, graduated, and was now firmly in place with a good career and a good job. But the gospel disagrees with that perspective. Look at the words of Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul asked these questions. What shall we conclude then? Do we or any of us have any advantage over one another? Because of our position, our background, our ethnicity, our culture, our accomplishments. Do any of us have any advantage? And he exclaims in response, not at all. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. It quickly becomes very obvious that God's definition of good is not the same as ours. And that if we use our definition in responding to God, we are going to be disqualified, invariably. The gospel is emphatic that our good, whatever it is that might give us worth or merit, in reality, does not achieve anything with God. And if you or I were to say to someone, you're good, 
has no worth or merit. That kind of a perspective in today's culture would be deemed to be harsh, hurtful, and denigrating of other people. And yet to reject that position of the gospel and to reject its emphaticness is to reject that I have any need for the gospel or that I have any need for the work of Jesus Christ. Understand this, that if I truly have intrinsic good within me that gives me merit with God, then the gospel message that God sent Jesus to pay my penalty and reconcile me through his death to God is a bogus message. For the gospel declares that I am a sinner without good in me. And that it is because of that sinfulness that Christ had to come and die on the cross. And so if I do, in fact, have good within me, that qualifies me in the sight of God, then the gospel message is a bogus message. If there is good, acceptability with God in the way I am living and the direction I am going in life, then Jesus was wrong to require repentance. Remember that his first word when he began to preach was repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does the word repent mean? It means a total change of values and lifestyle. Jesus was saying when he used that word repent, you are going in the wrong direction. Your mindset, your values, your lifestyle, the way that you live, your goals, and all that you are pursuing is not taking you towards God. It's taking you away from him. And you can't go towards God and you can't be right with God by continuing in the same direction that you are going. You need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to be converted. Jesus would demand that I acquiesce, I submit to his way, his truth, and his life. And that that was the only acceptable way to God. Remember what he said. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So his way is the only way. His truth is the only truth. His life, his manner of life, the values by which he lived life, the mindset that governed his lifestyle. It is the only way to God. The gospel is unwavering in its position that our sense, my sense, your sense of personal goodness and worth invariably disqualifies us with God. Once again, the gospel is unwavering in its position that our sense of personal goodness and worth invariably disqualifies us with God. In fact, the only acceptable merit that you and I can have with God is through a life exchange with Christ. I give him my life. You and I understand that when we confess our sins and we ask Christ for forgiveness, that we are giving him our sins and accepting his death in our place. But to do so, as we saw last week, is more than just believing. It involves a life exchange. 
And this is what this young man was unwilling to do. He would not exchange his life. You see, you and I want to exchange, and it's easy for us to exchange, what we cannot see. We want to hold on to what we can see. Our life, our security, our future, our goals, our comfort, our preferences, our status. I'll give Jesus my sins. And I'll accept his forgiveness. And I want eternal life. Somehow those have a certain abstractness to us. And it's easy for us to respond to those aspects. But let Jesus demand my future. That I not pursue the career for which I have studied. That I give up everything that I have poured my life into. That I walk away from it all and do something that he has told me to do. That does not seem to have any worth or future in my own eyes, let alone in the eyes of my parents and my peers. As well as society. Well, that's a different thing altogether. And yet, when I come to Jesus Christ as my Savior, I am exchanging my entire life, past, present, and future, for the life of Jesus Christ. You see, when I accept Jesus as my Savior, I am asking him for forgiveness of sin for a redemption, for a justification that goes beyond just my past sins. I'm asking him to cover my entire life with his provision. This is what justification does for us. It forgives our sins, past, present, and future. If it did not, then it would not be justification. We would not be truly made holy in the sight of God. We would only be as good as what we are at this moment. But the next moment that we sin or fail, then we would be undone. But that's not the work of Jesus Christ. When we give to him our lives... He gives to us his perfect redemption. When we put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ, then God justifies us just as if we had never sinned, past, present, and future. We are made holy in the sight of God. We are made secure in the work of Jesus Christ. But again, it's not a forgiveness of sins so that I get a get-out-of-hell-free card, and I get a card that gets me into heaven. And so I can go on now and plan my life. No, it's a life exchange. The Apostle Paul said there's no difference between anyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace that came through the redemption by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The Apostle Paul also wrote to the Ephesians and said, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not by works, so that no one, can boast. There is nothing that you and I can do that makes us good, that gives us worth before God. It is completely and solely the work of Jesus Christ. And we gain access to this grace, to this justification through faith by exchanging our lives for the life of Jesus Christ. But there is something interesting in this conversation at its very beginning. What good thing do I need to do 
the young man asked. And Jesus said, why are you talking to me about good? There is only one who is good. And he was, was referring to his father. But isn't Jesus good? We read that Jesus answered the young man, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus responded to this successful young man by declaring that there is only one who is good, that is, God. But isn't Jesus good? The fact is that in making this statement, Jesus was establishing the bottom line for what it means to experience true conversion and to follow him. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that you and I should have the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ. He set aside his equality with God to take upon himself the nature of a slave and that he was obedient to the Father's will to the point of death. Once again, in saying what Jesus said to this young man, he was establishing the bottom line for what it means for you and me to experience a true conversion and to follow him. Jesus had one life plan and goal, to represent the Father with an impeccable resemblance to the Father's character and will. Listen to the words of Jesus. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say it. In fact, Jesus would go further and say, whatever I say, is what the Father tells me to say and the way that he tells me to say it. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Once again, Jesus had one life, one life plan, and one goal. To represent the Father in an impeccable way. He would say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you listen to me, you listen to the words of the Father. For what does he tell us here? I speak only what the Father has taught me to say. Isn't Jesus good? Yes, Jesus is good. He is truly good because he was sinless and infinitely righteous. When he died, he did not die for his sin. He died for our sin. And because he was infinitely righteous, that righteous becomes our merit when we put our faith in him. And it's on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the merit of Jesus Christ, that God is able to show us his grace and his favor and to forgive us. So yes, Jesus is good. He is infinitely good. He is sinless. He is infinitely righteous. But understand that it's that very God righteousness within him 
that compelled him to follow the Father. For Jesus is not here with his own agenda. He is not here to live his own life. He is not here pursuing any goals of his own. He is here to do the will of the Father. He is following the Father and what the Father wants him to do with his life. And so it's that God-righteousness within Jesus that compelled him to reject any self-interest or advancement. When the people want to make him king, he disappears from their midst. When the devil comes to him and offers him status, wealth, opportunity, Jesus rebukes him with scripture. And he asserts the written will of the, of the Father as the life design for him. It's that God-righteousness within him compelling him to follow the Father that caused him to exclude everything from his life that was not the Father's specific choice for him. Jesus would say, everything I have done is what the Father commanded me to do. Can you and I say that about our lives? I never have done anything, I never do anything, except what Jesus commands me to do. I don't make any choices, except that I know that that is his choice for me. I don't encourage my children in any specific choice, even those choices which seem essential or advantageous and good, except that I know that that is God's specific choice for them. It is not being nitpicking. It is not being overly concerned. No, Jesus did not make any choices and did not speak any words except those things that he knew was the will of the Father for him and that impeccably resembled the nature, the character, and the will of the Father. It was that God-righteousness within him that compelled him to be taught by the Father how to live in order to precisely fulfill the Father's plan. You might ask the question, did Jesus really need to be taught? Wasn't he omniscient? Didn't he know everything? Yes, he did as God. But remember that he came in human form and he subjected himself to the same aspects of life that limit us. You and I need to ask God, what is your will for my life? Isaiah chapter 50 gives a prophetic picture of Jesus who would come before the Father each day and listen to what the Father would say to him. And then when he opened his mouth to speak, he would speak as one who had been taught. When you and I do things, we carry out actions. We pursue certain goals. We speak words in whatever we say and do. Does it evidence the fact that we have been taught by God to do those things? To say those things? It was that God righteousness within Jesus that determined that there would be no other life plan, life course, or daily actions except to follow the Father's lead in everything. And thus, in this way, Jesus was demonstrating what it would mean to follow him. 
You see, to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, to truly be a disciple, that is one who has been taught, a learner, is to emulate his example. There are a lot of people who claim to follow Jesus. The proof is in, do they speak the words of Jesus? Do they have a life plan that is based on what they want their lives to look like? What they want to accomplish? Or does their life plan reflect that they are living like Jesus? That they are emulating his example? That they are following his lead in everything? In Luke chapter 14, we read that large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Did you notice that three times Jesus said, cannot be my disciple? That unless you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, and yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And here in words that reflect what he said to this young man, who was very accomplished in life. If you do not give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. I cannot pursue my own future and also be following Jesus. I will be more shaped by those choices by the influence of Jesus Christ, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, by the word of God. You and I as parents can fail in this regard. We endeavor to give our children every opportunity and every advantage that will make them successful in life and academically accomplished. But in fact, we may be excluding from their perspective and their understanding any opening to say to Jesus Christ, what do you want to do with my life? We may be emphasizing the things that seem to matter most in this life 
in order to be accomplished, then that which will have the greatest value when we stand before Jesus Christ. You see, anything that I'm not willing to give up and walk away from means that I have a loyalty to some things that are greater than my loyalty to Jesus Christ. And any time that I do not ask him, what do you want me to do? Any time that I make a life choice, I orient my life in a certain direction, especially for a great investment of time in the future. It means that if I haven't gone before the Lord to say, is this what you want? me to do with my life, that I am following another pre-designed plan instead of his plan. I must always be at the place where following him is costing me everything. Where there is nothing that I am holding on to and nothing that has so much value to me that I would not be willing to give it up to do whatever it is that he might say to me to do. And if indeed what I am doing is his will and his purpose for my life, then through it, others will not see me, but they will see the character of Jesus Christ. They will see his nature. They will see his righteousness. They will see his selflessness. They will see his obedience to the Father, and they will see the same concern for those who don't know Jesus Christ as what was evidenced in his life. Last week, we saw the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote The Cost of Discipleship. Among the quotes that we looked at was one that's especially relevant to what Jesus is saying to us today. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Peter answered, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. One of the interesting things about this encounter was the response of the disciples when Jesus told this young man to give up everything and to follow him. And when Jesus said to his disciples, it is easier to become a millionaire than to get in heaven. I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Remember that the disciples responded, Lord, who then can be saved? You see, they had the perspective that a person's advancements and achievements in life gained worth and merit 
for them. It made them more likely. It made them a greater candidate. And they believed that to be achieving in life would give you a leg up, a greater opportunity of getting into the kingdom of God. But Jesus said that the opposite was in fact true. That the more successful you and I become, the more we achieve in life, the more significant our status, the more that we acquire, the less likely it is that we will enter the kingdom of God. The more things that we will have in the way, the more that we will consider those things to be too valuable to give up. And yet the reality is that Jesus said that it is those who give up everything in this life who will have much in eternity. While in fact, those who are not willing to give up in this life will have nothing in eternity. That many who are first in this life will be last in eternity. The great achievers, the overachievers. The ones about whom their parents like to brag. The ones who are so successful in this life. Jesus said, they will be last. And many who are last in this life, because of what they have given up to follow Jesus, look down upon others as being unsuccessful, not having done something worthwhile. They will be first in eternity. You see, Jesus is laying a foundation here for what it means to follow him. In following the will of the Father, he gave up everything. He laid aside everything. He sought no prerogatives, no advantages for himself. He did not seek to achieve anything. He did not seek any status of personal affirmation and accomplishment. He lived only to reflect the Father's character and the Father's will. And if you and I are truly followers of Jesus Christ, we can't follow him in a way that's different from how he followed the Father. We too, like Jesus, will need to give up everything in true repentance and in conversion, acceptance of his life in its entirety. We'll then need to follow him proving that his way is the only way for us, his truth is the only truth for our lives, and his life is the only life for us to live. It is easier to be a millionaire, in the words of Jesus, than to follow him and get into heaven. And yet you and I will find that the more we give up for Jesus, the greater will be the affirmation when we stand before him. May nothing get in the way of us following Jesus, but may he be worth everything to us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to give up everything of your position in heaven to become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That you were willing to take our place and die the death of one who has been cursed 
under God's judgment so that you might be able to exchange your righteous life for our sinful lives. We thank you today. We come to you. It seems daunting. It seems frightening to stand before you and say, I completely surrender my life to you. In the back of our minds, Lord Jesus, we have questions. What if he tells me to do this? What if he sends me there? What if everything I worked for, he wants me to toss aside? And thus we try to find a different way, an easier way, Lord Jesus, to follow you. But you remind us that we cannot come to the Father except through the way of you. And so we pray today that we would understand that in giving up everything about our lives, we are in fact giving up what doesn't count when we get to heaven. And in saying to you, here's my life, it is not mine, it is all yours, gives us the greatest advantage of your presence, your spirit, your life, your likeness, your worth, your value, being in our lives and being revealed through us. And so I pray that you would give us your grace today, the same grace that enabled you to say to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Give us that grace so that we might follow you even as you follow the Father. We pray in your name. Amen. <music>